This morning we are looking at 1 Samuel chapter 29, back to the story of David. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. And the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. 1 Samuel chapter 29. Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek. And the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel. As the lords of the Philistines were passing on by hundreds and by thousands, and David and his men were passing on in the rear with Achish, the commanders of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me now for days and years? And since he deserted to me, I have found no fault in him to this day. But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him. And the commanders of the Philistines said to him, Send the man back, that he may return to the place to which you have assigned him. He shall not go down with us to the battle, lest in the battle he become an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of the men here? Is not this David? of whom they sing to one another in dances. Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. Then Achish called David and said to him, As the Lord lives, you have been honest, and to me it seems right that you should march out and in with me in the campaign. For I have found nothing in you from this day of your coming to me this day. Nevertheless, the lords do not approve of you, So go back now and go peaceably, that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. And David said to Achish, But what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now, that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord the king? And Achish answered David and said, I know that you are as blameless in my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, The commanders of the Philistines have said, He shall not go up with us to the battle. Now then, rise early in the morning with the servants of your Lord who came with you, and start early in the morning, and depart as soon as you have light. So David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines. But the Philistines went up to Jezreel. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come to you because you have the words of life. And we ask that you would take your word here that we have read and apply it to our hearts. That it would change us. That it would focus our minds and our hearts upon the Lord Jesus. For this we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, we come back now in chapter 29 to David. And it may be that the literary convention that's being used here is about to drive you crazy. Because first we hear about David and the Philistines. 
And then just as it comes to the point of crisis, we stop and we go and we visit Saul. And then just as Saul is about to go into battle, the crisis of his life, we stop and we go back to David. So what is going on here? Now we're back with David at Aphek. And we're actually back to several days before the events of chapter 28. I think what our author is doing for us here, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is he is showing to us a distinction, a fundamental difference between Saul and David. How they reacted differently to their own shortcomings. And the difference is that Saul does not receive God's mercy, but David does. And so this morning in our text, I'd like us to see two main headings. First, David is in danger. David is in danger because of his own foolish decisions. Because he has been double-minded and unstable, to use the words of James. And then secondly, we see that David is delivered. That in spite of David's bad choices, in spite of David's wanderings, God will not let him go. And he is delivered. David in danger, and David is delivered. Well, let's then begin to look at the danger that David is in. It's actually quite easy to see. It is the fruit of a number of foolish choices that David has made. You see, our author here has gone back and forth not because he can't keep track of time. Not because he loves cliffhangers. But what he wants to show us is what makes all the difference is the relationship that someone has with God and the deliverance that comes from God's mercy. And so we pick David back up in Aphek. Now, this should be a bit ominous in our ears. Because the last time that the Philistines were in Aphek was in chapter 4. It was right before they completely defeated the Israelites, captured the Ark of the Covenant, and the high priest Eli fell and died upon hearing the news of his son's death. It was a complete and utter disaster for Israel. So we should be a bit nervous right off the bat as we hear that all the Philistines have gathered and they're gathering at this place. Now, in all the time that David has been on the run, I don't know if you have noticed, but it is his worst choices have come about from a lack of trust in God. The first time we saw this was when he went to Gath to try to escape from Saul. And he narrowly escaped with his life. At other times, even in greater danger, David was safe when he was trusting in the Lord. When he went to battle Goliath, for example. When he refused to kill Saul because he was God's anointed. David's safety is greatly linked to his trust in God. And this shouldn't surprise us because it is God keeping David safe, not David keeping David safe. Well, now we have a second bad choice by David. He has gone to Achish in chapter 27. He has gone to dwell amongst the Philistines, the enemies of God's people, 
believing that would make him safe from Saul. David thought he could plan his way out of trouble. Now, as we see from the text, he had Achish completely fooled. David had only attacked Israel's enemies, but Achish was sure he was attacking Israel itself. And Achish had thought that David had betrayed Israel and was completely dependent upon him. And so David has done his best in planning and scheming. But now his back is up against the wall. The fruit of his foolish choice is to place him on the horns of a dilemma. Either he can join in on the attack on Israel and be labeled a traitor, or he can refuse to join in on the attack and be destroyed by the Philistines. Now, you may have heard a salesman come up to you with what he calls a win-win pitch. Everybody wins. Well, this is a lose-lose. No matter what David picks, he loses. This is the fruit of his own foolish choice. Now, we see David here, and our author is painting him for us in clear colors to show David as a type, that is, as an example. Now, throughout the book of 1 Samuel, we've seen David as a type of Jesus, specifically when he fought Goliath, defeating the great foe of the enemy for the sake of his people. We've seen him as God's anointed one to usher in the kingdom. But here we don't see David as a type of Jesus. We actually see David as another type. A type of the doubting follower of Christ. James puts it this way. The one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And that exactly describes David here. He's attempting to live a double life. He wants to live a life in the world with the Philistines, and yet in Christ with the Lord. He's seeking first temporal salvation from the world, from the Philistines. And he's done a very good job of it. Now, listen to Achish's praise of David in verse 3. Is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who's been now with me for days and years, and I find no fault in him? Achish is over the top in his praise of David. Even the language he uses. He's been with me for days and years, decades and decades. And we want to say... um. Achish, I think it's actually 16 months. It's not years and years. And by the way, you haven't been paying very close attention to what has been going on because David hasn't served you really at all. He's fooling you. But Achish is so fooled that he has made David the head of his bodyguard. Now imagine what that is like. There has been a great consternation in America for several months over wondering if some Russians have been able to influence our election through Facebook. I didn't know Facebook was that powerful. But imagine this. Go a step further. Imagine if the president decided to make the North Koreans in charge of the Secret Service. 
or ISIS. They're going to be the Secret Service. They're going to be the bodyguards for the president. Now, that would be pretty foolish, wouldn't it? But that's exactly what Achish has done. That's how much he's fallen for David's trick. Now, this is important for you and I to see because David's failure here is not because he's not smart enough. It's not because he's not tricky enough. It's not because his plan doesn't work well enough. His plan works too well. He has Achish completely fooled. But at the same time that he seeks security with the world, David also wants eternal security from God. And the problem is you cannot take these two things that are separate and meld them together. I don't care how much duct tape you use. You cannot keep temporal security from the world and eternal security from the Lord together. When we try to do that, we become double-minded. We're of two minds. And we become unstable. And David is here at his most wobbly in this book. And the reason is that this does not work is that there are two principles that are at war with one another. And the illustration that we get from this story is very helpful. The Philistines are a picture of the world. And they are always at war with God's people. They are attacking God's people, trying to destroy God's people, trying to stop the worship of the Lord by His people. And so David here is trying to have two things that are irreconcilable. But the same could be true of one of us if we profess faith in Christ and yet we want to find meaning and significance in our job or career. So we compromise on our integrity to get ahead. Or if we want to have approval from other people and so we lie about who we are and we hide who we are to get the approval of the world and yet still think that we are standing for Christ. It's an unstable way of being. In the end, David cannot keep his allegiance to the Philistines and their approval at the same time unless he abandons God. Have you ever felt this tension in your life? Have you ever wondered what to do because of circumstances? Now, now I am not saying to you that you need to take yourself completely out of the world and have nothing to do with it. And I feel on safe ground in saying that because Jesus never said that. What Jesus said is, you are in the world, but you are not of the world. And what that means is, we are in the world and we have the circumstances of the world around us and we must deal with those circumstances and people. But we do not deal with them in a worldly way, that is, of the world. We deal with them in a godly way. We treat our circumstances as being under the rubric of the sovereignty of God and our trust in Him. We are meant to engage the world from a godly perspective so that the world, as it looks upon us, sees where our loyalty lies. David is in trouble. He's made a bad decision, and his double-mindedness has brought him a dilemma. So what will David do? Imagine the scene here. 
All the Philistines are gathered together for war against Israel. They're all preparing to march to the attack. You might have seen this in newsreel footage or in a movie where groups, companies, battalions march together to to gather up their forces to go into battle. That's exactly what's happening here. All of the Philistines are gathered together and yet there's David right in the middle, or should I say at the rear, of the Philistine army. David's brilliant plan has him caught in a trap. And so we're not sure what David will do. How will David be delivered? And the problem is it's not just our uncertainty about what David will do. The other thing that is out there for us is we don't expect to see God here. Right? After all, these are the Philistines. You know the old saying, right? You've probably said it yourself. You made your bed, go lie in it. Right? Parents understand this with our kids. Our kids want to do something that we know is not smart, will bring difficulty and pain. And sometimes the best thing that we can do is to allow them to fail. To allow them to try what they think is a brilliant plan so that they can see the problems that go along with it. And I hate to say that I think for many of us, myself included, we kind of enjoy a little too much when they flop. Because it's kind of like, see, I told you, that's not how the world works. You should listen to me. I know what I'm talking about here, right? Now, we don't want severe damage, right? We don't want our children to, to flunk out of school. But you know, one bad quiz grade's not so bad, right? Make them feel a little bit of pain. That's what we expect God to do here, because in a sense, we expect God to be like us. We expect him to say, let's see you get out of this one, David. What are you going to do now? I didn't tell you to go to the Philistines. I actually told you to stay and trust me. You did the exact opposite. This is your problem, not my problem. That is what we expect. But then instead, something surprising happens. It's a surprising work of the Lord. Now, God does not obviously burst onto the scene here. If you notice... God is not mentioned, practically speaking, in any of this chapter. As a matter of fact, there's only one person who mentions the Lord. Do you know who it is? It's Achish. It's not David. Achish says in verse 6, excuse me, as the Lord lives... He uses an oath here with David. He says, as the Lord lives, you have been honest. Now, Achish is probably just doing this to be polite. He's using a phrase that David would be familiar with. He might have just as easily said, by Jove. Right? So God isn't front and center in this passage. But as David and his men are marching, the lords of the Philistines see him. Now you have to understand how the government of the Philistines works. Achish has been called a king, but he is not the king of the Philistines the same way that Saul is the king of the Israelites. The Philistines had five major towns or cities and then a number of other villages. And each of the major town or cities had a lord over it. And those five lords came together as kind of a council, as a group 
to make decisions for the Philistines. They all together gathered to go to war. So Achish isn't in charge here. And the other lords look and they say, what on earth is going on here? They can't believe what they're seeing. Look at verse 3. What are these Hebrews doing here? Now they're flabbergasted. Now you have to also understand that when they say Hebrews, they are not paying homage to the New Testament book. Hebrew in the Old Testament, calling someone a Hebrew, was a derogatory way of referring to the Israelites. They didn't refer to themselves as Hebrews. They referred to themselves as Israelites. And so they're calling them names and saying, what on earth are these people doing here? This is a Philistine army. You can almost imagine them looking at each other and saying, aren't we going to go fight the Hebrews? Why are they here in our camp? And so perhaps we think for a moment this is where the solution will come from. But we're held in some suspense. Especially when at the end of that verse 3, Achish comes to David's defense. Achish says, you know, this David, I find no fault in him. He's been with me for years and years and years. All the time he's been with me. Of course, he's exaggerating to effect. He's the most loyal servant I've ever had. I've made him my bodyguard. I think he should go in and out with us. But then, the Lord's become angry with Achish in verse 4. And they tell him they'll have none of this. They say, send him back. We don't want him in our midst. And they give two main arguments that I think makes sense to us. The first is an argument from prudence. They say, now listen, if David wanted to get in the good graces of Saul again, what better way to do it than to attack us from behind and kill us and bring our heads to Saul? Then Saul would love David again. And then the second argument is one from history. They remind Achish, of that great top 40 hit in Judah, David and his ten thousands. Now, I'm telling you, they don't remember this top hit because of its catchy tune. They remember it because they were the ten thousands. They were being killed by David. And they say, you couldn't have picked a worse person. Get an Amalekite, get a Moabite, get any kind of ite. Just don't get David. It doesn't make any sense at all. And so David is saved by the Philistines. Think about that. The irony here is the Philistines understand the conflict between the world and God's people better than David does. They say, he's on another side from us. He has this Lord. We've been fighting them for years and years and years, back to before Saul was king. And so Achish's hands are tied. He has no choice but to give in. And once again, we see the Lord at work in a quiet, providential, incredible way. God turns enemies into saviors. Now, I have to give you a pastoral word of caution here. I am not here to tell you that 1 Samuel 29 is a blank check that the Lord will always deliver you out of every difficulty you are in because you make a boneheaded decision. That is not what the text is saying. What it is showing us is our wisdom is no match for God's. 
This is a vivid illustration of the principle that nothing is impossible with God. Imagine if you're David or one of David's men. What do we do now? The situation is impossible. We've got nowhere to go. We could fight the Israelites and be traitors. We could be killed. We can't. It's impossible. And God says, nothing is impossible. And they say, it would require, I don't know, the Philistines to help us out. Okay. God will do it. Nothing is impossible with God. This is God's surprising work. So, all's well that ends well, right? David won't have to go to war against Israel. As a matter of fact, they won't even let him go to war. David must be feeling a huge relief of mind. The only thing he can't do is let it show. Have you ever had that happen? When someone says something, oh, I'm sorry you can't go with us to go shopping at the mall for dresses, gentlemen. I'm so sorry. There's other work you've got to do. You can't stand with your wife and watch her try on dress after dress after dress. And you're trying really hard not to smile. That's horrible. I guess I got to watch the college football game, but I am going to be, I am going to miss looking at that blue dress and that purple dress, but I'll, I'll fight through it and I'll make it work, right? You're trying not to smile. That's what David's got to do here. And Achish comes up to David and he says, I'm sorry. I think you should be able to go in and out to battle, but the Lord's won't let me. So I have no choice but to send you home. I'm sorry. And I think what we expect to see is David do what we might do. Do his best kind of, aw, shucks, impression. I would love to go out to war and fight the Israelites. But I guess not. Thanks. See you later. But we have another surprise in verse 8. David shows perhaps too much disappointment. He actually shows Some anger. And we've heard this before. What have I done in the past? This is a famous speech that David keeps repeating over and over again. What have I done to deserve this? Except for now, he's using it with the Philistines. And there's a fundamental difference. When David says to Saul, what have I done? I've been loyal. He's he's telling the truth. When David says to Achish, what have I done? I've been loyal. He's lying. He has it. I can tell you what you've done, David. You haven't attacked Judah. You haven't attacked their allies. You attacked the Amalekites. You attacked the Moabites. You lied to Achish. You tricked him to let you have your own town. Where do you want me to stop, David? What have I done? We got a laundry list here. And so, what we want to do is look at David and say, Stop it. Just go already. Be quiet and go, David. And we ask, why is David doing this? And this shows us the persistent work of the Lord in David's life, how God is still at work. One suggestion is that David is just continuing his play. He's just hamming it up a bit. He's trying to win the award for best Israelite actor in a betrayal scene. And so he's really hamming it up. And I think that's possible, maybe even likely. 
But we don't know for sure. We're not told. But there is another option that I think is curious. And that is that David wanted to do exactly what the Philistines thought he would do. And he's up to David's old tricks here. Notice what David says to Achish. What have I done that I may not go out and fight against the enemies of my lord the king? Now this is what adults call a double entendre. Or this is an ambiguous phrase. This is, you know, kids do this too. When parents ask them a question and they don't want to answer it directly, they give an answer that can be taken one of two ways. That's what David's doing here because who is my lord the king? Is it Achish? Every other place in this book, my lord the king for David is Saul. Who are the enemies of my lord the king? Is it the Israelites? Every other place in the book, it would be the Philistines. So David is playing loose with language. He's saying to Achish, I really want in this battle. And we have to wonder, why is David so eager to get in this battle? Except for if maybe what he is thinking is, I am going to save the day. I'm clever. I'm going to be at the rear, and at just the right time, my men will strike and will Break up the Philistines. We've already seen this happen once before. You remember earlier in the book, there were Israelites hiding in caves. And when the Israelites and the Philistines were fighting, they came out of the caves and overwhelmed the Philistines. Kind of a fifth column in the rear. I think there's a very good chance that that's what David means here. But there's a big problem with this. And you and I know it. Because we've read chapter 28. And we know that God has decided that the day will not be saved. Not by Saul, not by the Israelites, not by David. God has pronounced his judgment on Saul and his sons and his kingdom. And he has told Saul that the Israelites will be given into the hand of the Philistines. That is God's declaration. And nothing David does is going to stop that. You see, God doesn't need David's cleverness here. God will save David not only from the Philistines, but God will save David from David. You see, this is the persistent nature of God's work in our lives. He doesn't cast off his children because of their foolishness. Our foul-ups do not negate his mercy. You need to hear this. Because the enemy of your soul will not just whisper, he will yell in your ear that God is giving up on you because you have done wrong. Because you have not done this. Because you have not done that. God loves you no longer. And that is the argument of your adversary, Satan. It doesn't come from God. Because God's mercy is persistent. It is determined. It is, we might even say, stubborn. Don't believe me? If you have your Bibles with you, turn to what is perhaps the best known psalm of all. Psalm 23. You know it, right? As I begin to read it, you probably can say it in your head. If not word for word, at least in concept. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. 
He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Everything about this psalm speaks about the protection and the trust that we should have in God because he will take care of us. Though we walk through the the valley of the shadow of death, he will be there. Though we have enemies before us, they will prepare a table for us. But I want you to focus for just a moment on verse 6. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Now, I want to give you a picture of this verse that I hope you can hold on to for a long time. When we read that translation, and that's not a bad translation, follow for that verb, what I get in my mind is, as I'm walking, I look back there and I say, okay, yep, the goodness and mercy is still behind me. Okay, come on. It's following me. Keep coming. Come on. Right? This is one of the only places in all of the Old Testament that this Hebrew verb is translated, follow. It means follow, but you know what it really means in its context? It means pursue. It means chase. It even has been translated to hunt down. Now that should give you a much different picture of God's mercy. It's not tagging along behind you like a puppy dog. It will chase you down like the bloodhounds of a posse. It will never let you go. God's mercy will come after you. And you can try and mess it up. You can go different directions. You can try and even throw it off you by your scent. You remember those old movies where they flee and they go through the river to try to throw off the scent of the bloodhounds. And they can't do it. There's always a dozen of them. Roo, roo, roo. Always. They can't get away from them. That's how you should view the mercy of God. You cannot get away from it. God's mercy cannot be stopped even by us. And so the end of this chapter shows the difference that the grace of God makes. In the last chapter, Saul left in darkness, right? It was night. He was hopeless. He was doomed. How does David leave? David leaves at morning. When the sun is bright. Hopeful. He has been saved from his dilemma. I don't think this is a coincidence. I think the author wants us to see these two pictures. And see what a difference it makes. To have the mercy of God. Saul's plan wasn't a dumb plan. Saul mounted his army. He positioned his army on the heights of Gilboa. They had the high ground. He was doing well. He tried a a backup plan to get advice from the dead even. He was working every angle he could work. But his problem was not his ability to work the angles. His problem was that he had rejected the grace and mercy of God. And David is saved in the midst of all of his blunderings. Because the mercy of God would not let him go. Without Jesus Christ, we have no hope. Regardless of how smart we are or how much we plan. But with Jesus, we have hope. 
Because His mercy hangs on to us even when we are falling down. Let's pray.